0: Good morning. Oh man, it's good to see you all. And uh, man, how good to be in the house of the Lord worshiping Jesus. Man, the band led us well today. I mean, can we just show them some love for... (laughs) Woo! Oh man, Um, so I'm super hyper today and uh, I'm going to need to calm down a little bit. So uh, pray for me or enjoy it. Uh, Your choice. But um, My name is Kondo. I get to serve as one of the pastors here. Coolest job in the world. I'm not saying yours is bad, just not um, as good. And um, I just want to say something before we get into what we want to talk about this um, morning. And uh, as many of you know, last week we had what we uh, called a prayer up. And uh, for those of you who don't know what that is, we as a church uh, went to 10 different neighborhoods and walked door to door offering to pray God's peace and God's presence over total strangers. Yes, crazy, scary, the most insane thing we've probably done um, at least in a while. And it was awesome. So uh, last month, we got to celebrate the fact that um, our Love Up, uh, kind of our monthly initiative to put the love of Jesus on display in our community, uh, which focused around caring for and coming alongside adoptive families and foster care families, that Love Up last month was the most well-engaged, most well-attended Love Up we have ever done. That was until last week. Over 150 of you said yes to doing the scariest, most insane thing we have ever done. Oh man, I'm so hyper about that. Because what I'm convinced about is there is no chance in God's green earth, or whatever color it is at this time of year, there is no chance that our city ever recovers from that. There is no chance the church leaves the building and represents the body of Christ and invites the presence of God to invade those moments on people 's porches, and things don't shift in this city. There is no chance. so I can 't wait to see what the harvest of that act of faithfulness on your behalf is going to be. Um, a group of about 20 of us went to a neighborhood. well, it's more like an apartment complex here in town, and we offered to pray for a variety of people and um, it was amazing. And when I say amazing, don't get me wrong. Some people said, "Eh, no, some people didn't open the doors. We had one guy who saw us coming up the stairs and he leaned over the edge and just started yelling at us. Don't even think about coming up here. I'm an atheist. I want nothing to do with God. I don't mind if I burn in hell and I don't believe you guys can honestly continue to da-da-da-da-da. And he just went on to let us have it. And then he spent about four minutes telling us all the reasons why he didn't want to talk to us. And so we just let the guy process. Um, and I was with my daughter, and I'm like, God, please protect tiny ears, you know, from whatever might come out um, next. And, uh, and then when he was done, he went in his house, and a group of us just started praying for him right there and there. And it occurred to me a couple of things. Number one, I don't know if this guy's ever been prayed for by anybody. Number two, it occurred to me that dude has no idea what just happened to him. His world just brushed up against heaven just a little bit, just for a moment, as the presence of God showed up just in a glimpse. And I have hopes that that guy would not be the same. I'm looking forward to baptizing him at some point. I don't know when. But um, my point is, regardless of the response we got, our responsibility is not the response. It's the obedience to take these crazy risks the Lord invites us to. So thank you to over 150 of you crazy people who said yes to being the church, leaving the building, and going out into our community. And God have your way with us and through us. So I'm super hyped and super excited. But today... Um, We are starting a series um, that we are calling Storytime or Storytellers or whatever Matt wants to call it. That's up to him. Um, But, uh, you know, I grew up with a mom who loved to tell us the old, ancient um, stories of the Bible. She had this children's book, Bible, um, out of which she would, you know, read these stories. And... um, Man, she would open those pages and transport us centuries into the past, into the sights and into the sounds and into the smells um, of some of those classic stories of the Old Testament. And I particularly remember um, when the power would go out and um, yeah, we had electricity in Africa, but the power would go out and uh, we would gather around, you know, kind of family time around the candles and we knew it was story time and uh our minds would be peaked our worlds would be opened in those moments as we became acquainted with some of these ancient stories so um for the next few weeks we are going to have story time at mission point community church we are together going to kind of gather around and be transported into the sight and the sound and the smells of some of the most well-known stories of the old testament and what we found as kids and what I think we're going to find now is that those stories were full of richness and relevance for our lives then and they're full of richness and relevance for our lives now and so together we're going to unearth some of those treasures together and I wonder if you've ever heard the one about Noah and the ark it's a good one Um, Now, spoiler alert, God sends a flood and destroys the whole earth, but he rescues Noah and uh, his family in this wooden vessel called an ark. If you have a copy of the scriptures, we're going to be in Genesis chapter 6. Genesis chapter 6, and we're going to inch into 7 for a little bit. If you don't have a copy, we're going to have the verses up on the screen. Um... If you don't own a Bible, by the way, would love to get one in your hands. Just head out the back to the connection corner and just let the folks there know, hey, I could use a Bible and will be thrilled uh, to get one. To you, uh, but we're going to start in Genesis chapter six, and we'll start reading um, at verse nine. And um, here's what um, we we're going to see: um, is that long before a flood, and long before an ark is built, and long before we discover this epic mission that this guy was called into, we first meet the man Noah. And I suspect that as we meet the man and get to know him, we are going to be strangely stretched and challenged by the man he was before we are caught up in the epic mission he was called to. And so uh, Genesis chapter 6, we're going to start reading at um, verse 9. Here's what it says. This is the account, and by the way, unlike my mom, I'm going to be pausing and interrupting the story and making some observations, so just uh, brace yourself yourself for that. But uh, verse 9 says, this is the account of Noah and his family. Noah was a righteous man, blameless among the people of his time, and he walked faithfully with God. First of all, what a way to have heaven introduce you to the world. This is our first real interaction with Noah, the man. And heaven accuses him of being righteous and being faithful. I mean, what a way... To have heaven assess you. What a way for the evaluation that matters most from the place that knows you best to describe you. See, because I can stand up here for an hour every week or sit down or whatever the case might be. And I can put my best foot forward. I can be on my best behavior for a little window of time and do it in such a way that convinces you as you walk out of the building that I'm a half a decent guy. You can work with people for 40 hours a week and they could walk away after years of working with you talking about, oh my goodness, how sweet, she is the most sensitive, until they talk to your kids and find out the real assessment. What we run into as this story starts is heaven's assessment of Noah because When heaven evaluates you, it's not just taking snapshots. It's it's not just stringing together the best moments of your life into a highlight reel. Heaven has full access to everything you do 24 hours a day. This is the body and the breadth of Noah's life, seen and unseen. The highlights and the low beams, all of this is included. And when the verdict is returned, it says he was righteous and he was faithful. And we're about to see um, that the time in in which Noah lived was was a time in which darkness was in vogue. Um, It was trending to disregard God. And um, it was trending, you know, to kind of just do you back in that day. And, um, you know, while you're at it, just outdo her. And while you're at it, you might as well do away with him. It was a dog-eat-dog, every man and woman for themselves. But this opening announcement, I love it because it, it tells us something even as it introduces us to Noah. It reminds us of the reality that regardless of the degree of darkness in any generation, there is always a remnant. There's always a righteous remnant. A minority few who stubbornly determine in their own worlds that we are, we are going to flow against the flow. And we're going to trend against the trend. And we're going to rebel against rebellion. And even if I am the only one, and even if it costs all that I am, I'm going to go with God. And in this particular generation, that man was Noah. As the Bible describes him, righteous and blameless. Righteous and blameless. These are two good words. Let's just take a second to, uh, to talk about them. Righteous. That's, that's a good word. Uh, because by definition, righteous means to live in light of God's standards. It's a word we've talked about in recent months quite a little bit here um, at Mission Point. But it's to live in light of God's standards and that 's really good because humanity, and the church sadly is no exception, it has a notorious tendency to do that thing where we kind of take a popularity poll to decide what 's acceptable and what 's not, to decide what 's right and what 's Wrong. Because here's how we tend to function is if we can get enough parents to agree and start to say things like, Well, you know, you gotta pick your battles. I mean, you know, teenagers will be teenagers, they're going to explore with their sexuality. So the reality is if we keep driving this standard, what we're going to end up doing is driving them away. And then when we're old and in nursing homes, they'll never come and see us. And then the other parents will say, oh yeah, good idea. So why don't we lower the standard so that our consciences feel a little better about the way we're parenting or whatever is going on in our kids' lives. We have a tendency to take a popularity poll and then make decisions based on... That, oh, so I'm not the only one in the church who's getting tipsy on the regular. So you are too, and you are too. Oh, sweet relief, my conscience has experienced the breath of fresh air, knowing that there's a group of us, in fact, a majority group of us. And so because there's a majority group of us, we don't have to worry about living up to that standard anymore. We have this crazy tendency to dumb down the standard, and then we live according to the dumbed down standard. I mean, if 80 people liked my brutally cruel rant against those people on social media and 40 of those people were people I go to church with, then surely it's okay for me to just brutally lash out at people on social media because now we've created a new standard. And before you know it, righteousness becomes a majority rule. It's common law. It's graded on a curve. And yet when the Bible uses this word, it never uses it this way. And when the Bible speaks of Noah, it's not speaking of him this way. This word means that Noah lived in light of heaven's standard. He frankly didn't care what you wanted or what you thought or who liked what. And frankly, he didn't even care necessarily what his kids may or may not do with him when he was older if he enforced what God said now. He lived in light of God's standard. Noah was righteous. Um, To reference a series we did not too long ago, Noah was buckled with the belt of truth. Man, we need more men and women like Noah in our day. Sadly, And let me just warn you so you are aware of this. If you dare to start to trend towards righteousness, if you dare to start to live according to God's standards, sadly, 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 some of the first people who will come after you will be people in the church. And they'll start to say about you like you are radical and you are extreme and you are holier than thou and you are like a legalist. That's a, a word we like to throw around with people who are not loose with their liberties. Like you are a legalist because your desire is to live actually according to what God says but we need a remnant to rise up and say regardless of popular opinion regardless of popular rule we want to live according to the standard that God has established and I wonder if there isn't a remnant of the righteous in the house this morning but heaven doesn't just accuse Noah of being righteous. It also accuses him of being faithful. That's just such another good word as we are inspired by this man, Noah. It says he's faithful. Look at verse 9 again. It says, This is the account of Noah and his family. Noah was a righteous man, blameless among the people of his time. Even his people knew he lived up to God's standard. And he walked faithfully with God that's a good word faithful it's another word we've kind of been obsessed with over the last two or so years faithful it means to live in light of God's standard consistently faithful is to be righteous over a course of time consistently um See, I need to be reminded of men like this because I don't know about you, but if I have a two-day streak of doing my devotions, I'm ready for the heavens to open and confetti to come down and my name to be on a plaque, you know, in heaven for doing such a good job. In fact, I even think like, man, I've earned myself six months of slacking off because I had two good days. The word faithful is so huge in our cultural um, and generational context. In an era in which kids get trophies for just thinking about joining a sports team. In an era in which the thought apparently is all that counts. Faithful. In an era where irreconcilable differences are good enough reason to stop short of a lifelong commitment to a person faithfulness this is a a good word in an era in which i'm looking for a new job because this one makes me work we need faithfulness i think we're losing a sense of faithfulness the art of staying in the art of staying with things because god says even when they get intensely hard Noah didn't just have a rare streak of obedience. The word here actually means it was his way of life. Obedience was Noah's trend. It was Noah's pattern. And by the way, if you have any question other than the fact that the Bible tells us he was faithful... If you need any additional evidence that Noah was faithful, I would draw your attention to the fact that when we meet him here in, in Genesis chapter 6, verse 9, this dude is 525 years old at least. That's so super old. 525 years All this guy. Now, why am I drawing so much attention to this guy's old age? Because the word insinuates that Noah has been living up to God's standard for the majority of his adult life. Which, if we are conservative, that means he has been faithful to God for 500 years. Five centuries, y'all. 50 decades, half a millennium, this guy has said no to what's trending in popular culture. He said no to what is acceptable. He's refused to bow down at the altar of popularity. For 500 years, he said no to picking his battles if God has already picked them. 500 years, he's danced to the groove of heaven regardless of what everybody else is listening to. 500 years. Yes, he was faithful. And his longevity and his life was evidence of that. It's not that he just lived in light of God's standard. He did it for centuries and centuries and centuries. And I love what Psalm 101 verse 6 says. It says God says, my eyes will be on the faithful in the land That they may dwell with me I want that the one whose walk is blameless will minister to me God says I just I wonder if God may not want to revive this word faithful in our day I wonder if he, he, he doesn't want to raise up a movement of people who are far from content with a weekend of obedience And who want a lifetime. I wonder if there isn't a remnant of us in this house. Maybe even this morning who would pray God give us the spirit of Noah. Give us a spirit of faithfulness that longs to love and honor you with our lives for our lifetimes. When we meet Noah, heaven wants us to know he was righteous. And he was faithful. I often rush to the ark and I often rush to the flood. And I think I've too often missed the man. And what the scriptures would want us to know about him and learn of him. So, spirit of the living God make us like this man. And, and, And look at just how much Noah would have stood out in his day. Verse 10, Genesis chapter 6. It says, Noah had three sons, um, Shem, Ham, Japheth. I wonder which one was the clown of the family. But uh, verse 11 says, Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight and was full of violence. God saw how corrupt the earth had become. He always does. For all the people on earth had corrupted their ways. I love even just the subtle poetic juxtaposition of these two scenes. That the same heaven that assessed Noah as righteous is rendering an assessment on the rest of the world. And when that evaluation comes down, it says the rest of humanity was corrupt and violent this passage is describing this world in which, you know, people had become completely okay with using and abusing, with hurting and harming each other. Um, if it would increase their pleasure and it would increase their position, that's the language that's being used. I will hurt you however I have to, whether with words or physically, if it means I get to advance my own personal position my own sense of pleasure if i can say cruel things about you do violent things so be it that's the order of a day it, it, it was such a terrifying picture of brutality and bloodshed running a mass in that world in fact as a kid i can still remember you know Uh, thinking uh, thoughts of gratitude Um, uh, I would hear this story and it would make me say God thank you so much that you spared me from being born and brought up in this scary era with a bunch of uncivilized ruthless savages primitive and unrestrained I used as a kid be thankful that that, that wasn't me then I read this again not too long ago as I was preparing for this series, and a reread of this passage shook me a little bit because it occurred to me oh, I am totally living in a day just like. This one. About 1.2 million violent crimes were committed around the U.S. in 2015. Um, Estimated number of murders in the nation um, that year were over 16,000. 90,000 rapes. 327,000 robberies, and statistics say that 65% of attacks or assaults are not reported. Which means this is portraying a fraction of what actually happened two years ago in this country, and we know that last year things upticked. But I don't have to convince you of that. When was the last time you remember going through a week without hearing of some violent encounter? I mean, when's the last time you even got on social media and didn't see some kind of a verbal assault from one person to another? We are living in a violent and a brutal era today. And it shook me a little bit because I thought, what would heaven write about this nation at this time if it was rendering an assessment of the world in which we live right now? Because we don't think about it just like they weren't thinking about it that way. It was just the world in which we live. But the reality is, aren't we the barbarians? Aren't we the civilized, uncivil, the violent, the hateful, the discriminatory? Aren't we the social media assassins? This is describing us and what's even more terrifying to me is not just that we're living in a violent culture But it's that many of us have probably heard of at least three violent, if not deadly acts and acts of terror in the last month. And we just continue to scroll right by them to see if a giraffe gave birth. It's not just that we live in a violent era, it's that we live in a violent era and we're so numb to the violence that we can scroll by a mass shooting to figure out if our bracket is still intact and we don't lose an ounce of sleep, our hearts don't break even an inch. That tells you we've become inoculated to violence. One of the greatest ways you can know we live in a violent era is when we don't even feel it anymore. And I just couldn't help but shudder and wonder what is heaven's evaluation of our contemporary Culture, Because we will use and we will abuse and we will slander and we'll step on whomever to get ahead or to push our political view forward. Which means whatever heaven has to say about the people in Noah's day is what heaven has to say about us. Whatever heaven has to say about that era of violence and brutality and discrimination and hate is what heaven would say to us. And if there's any mystery about how God feels about a culture in which violence is trending, if there's any suspense about how God responds when a generation discards and disregards his principles and insists on choosing, you know, doing me or outdoing them or doing away with them or using them or abusing them for position and power. This story tells us what God's response is. Look at verse 13. So... God said to Noah, I am going to put an end to all people, for the earth is filled with violence because of them. I am surely going to destroy both them and the earth. Wow. God's response to this culture of violence and corruption and brutality is certain judgment. And church, God's response to the sin and violence and brutality and ruthlessness in our era is certain Judgment. In fact, l- let me take it a step further. God's only response to violence and corruption and brutality is always judgment. And I'm sorry. I mean, I know, I mean, church is supposed to be kind of an uplifting uh, situation, but I'm sorry because. I think that we have been introduced um, to a 21st century updated version of God who is super hip and has grown super chill with sin. He doesn't overreact like he used to, He's God 2.0. The problem with a version of God that is super chill with sin is that it is not a biblical version of God. That is never how the Bible portrays God, ever. The God of the Bible only has one response to sin, and that is certain destructive judgment. Listen, you disregard God, God will destroy you. That is not a popular thing to teach, but that's what the Bible says. And that's the picture that's painted in this story. The first part of Romans chapter 6 verse 23 says, For the wages of sin is death. How often are the wages of sin death? Always and every single time. This is God's response. This is God's response. I used to think that the um, softening parent syndrome was a a myth. Um, Until I became a parent. Uh, Now, for for those of you um, who are firstborns, or maybe you're the second-born in a relatively larger family. Uh, You know what I mean when I talk about softening um, parenting syndrome. Um, So, I am the second-born of five. I have three younger sisters. The youngest of my sisters is eight years younger than I am. And I will never forget when I went back home after being away for about a year. Um, and she had grown up, you know, uh, a little bit. And uh, we're sitting at the table and I can remember feeling terrified. I remember feeling scared because uh, in some situation happened where um, my dad gave my sister a direct order. Something to the effect of take your plate to the sink. Um, then um, my sister Said something back to my dad, to the effect of, um, "Why don't you take it?" So, um, so now I'm scared. I'm rehearsing her eulogy in my mind, and trying to think which of her stuff is going to be mine in a couple of minutes. You know, that was that was that was my situation. So I sat there watching my dad to see which, you know, murder weapon that he would choose for this particular occasion. And um, my dad looks at my sister and he says something to the effect of, please, sweetheart. I'm not please, sweetheart. I go from being scared to now just being angry because my dad killed me at least three times growing up for crimes much less than that. When I was growing up, mouthing off to my dad was a capital offense. And all of a sudden, it was, please, sweetheart, my dad got soft over the years. In fact, I still think my sisters owe me some gratitude because he took out all his punishment on me. He had nothing left for them when they were growing up, talking about take it yourself. The audacity. Then I became a parent, <laughs> and then I started to get it a little bit. Um, my son, who's 13, my firstborn, when that kid came into the world, I think I took like a solid four hours to strap him into his car seat with some silly, postpedic, you know, mattress pillow situations all around him. Uh, you parents, young parents know what I'm talking about, Devlins, gurglies. You know what's going on. Um, But man, and then I drove like four miles an hour home, you know, just waving everybody by me with my hazards because we were going to get there safe. This was my son. No risk was going to come in his general direction. Um, Two years later, I had a daughter, and I think I sent an Uber to go get my wife and my daughter from the hospital because you chill out as a parent. You kind of calm down, and that's just true. Like, it's been three seconds. Have you seen him? Where's our son? Where is our son? In our daughter, she's been gone three days, she's fine. <laughs> She'll get home eventually, she knows where we live, she has our phone numbers memorized. I mean, you do kind of chill out as a parent. What used to freak you out when you were just starting? You're just kind of like, ah, oh, you know what? Six-year-olds can drive, I think the rules are ridiculous. Like you do, you just start to slack off on things um a little bit and I think we talk about God like this sometimes the softening God syndrome I think we talk about him like there was Old Testament God and he was hypersensitive about sin um and rebellion and he dealt swiftly with judgment but then his little second testament was born And he just became much more laid back. Sending Ubers to get us, you know, from our our drunken binges on the weekend and saying, Oh, please, sweetheart. Uh, Let me make an announcement to you. There is no such thing as a New Testament God. That is a lie. That is a myth. Hear ye, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. There is no Old Testament God who is super crabby, but then there's a New Testament God who is super chill. There's an Old Testament God who is super strict, and then the New Testament God who's kind of laid back. There is only one God. This is not a throwback story of an old school God. This is God. And what this story is doing is telling us how the God of the Bible always responds to rebellion. And always responds to violence and to brutality. And what this is doing is telling us how God will respond. To a generation that trends in hate and in violence. God hates violence no less now than he did in Noah's day. He hates discrimination no less now than he did in Noah's day. He hates corruption no less now than he did in Noah's day. And he will respond with judgment and destruction. But here's the better part of the story. See, because I think the thing we are seeing in our generation, which is something we see if we look closely enough at this story, is what the psalmist says in Psalm 145 verse 8. Look at this. What we are seeing is that the Lord is gracious and compassionate. He is slow to anger and rich in love. And I fear that we mistake his patience for tolerance. But they are not the same thing. Do not suspect that he has become chill on sin. The good news is that God has always been super patient with sinners. It was true then and it is true now. And I suspect that there are some of us in the house this morning who would testify that God has been patient with me. It's not that he slacks off or he is chilled. It's that God is immensely patient. When God announced his judgment to Noah, he had been watching and warning his people. He had seen them dis and dishonor and disregard him for centuries. That's patience. I know I've never one time said to my kids, I'm counting to 500 now. I can't imagine doing that. I can't imagine saying, if you continue to mouth off to me for five centuries, boarding school. No, but God is immensely patient as he watched and waited and wooed for centuries before this moment in chapter six. God is immensely patient. That's what this story is showing us. He hates sin and a generation that abuses each other. He is going to judge justly and decisively. And honestly, the fact that we're still a nation ought to make us thank him at some point in the next 20 seconds that he gives us breath in in our lungs. He should have done away with us. And what's crazy is we actually, instead of thanking him for his patience, we start to suspect we may be getting away with it or maybe God has chilled out when all it is is his beautiful announcement of I'm patiently waiting. But believe me, I am counting. And you have no idea when I will say 500 and announce that it is time. Time was up. For the people in that day. And uh, so God announced his D-Day um, to Noah. He determined he would destroy the world and everyone in it. Um, well, everyone except that righteous guy, Noah. And because Noah's faithfulness was great, God determined to use him to preserve um, the lives of his family and loved ones look at verse 14 in chapter 6 as this story starts to wind so God says make yourself an ark of cypress wood make yourself this wooden vessel and make rooms in it and and coat it with pitch inside and out I still need to go see the replica in Kentucky um, of this thing Um, Verse 17 says, I'm going to bring floodwaters on the earth to destroy all life under the heavens, every creature that has the breath of life in it. Everything on earth will perish. But, oof, that's a grace word always. I will establish my covenant with you and you will enter the ark, you and your sons and your wife and your sons' wives with You This terrifying picture, God is going to destroy everyone who has rebelled from him. And Revelation chapter 20, by the way, says there's coming a day in our future where God will destroy again those who have rebelled against him. And God gives a few more instructions um, because he intends to spare this righteous man's life, his life and his family's. Life, But something I've I've missed in in looking over the story of of Noah and this ark, I've not paid too much mind to it. it, is the fact that God in his grace and God in his patience seems to not only offer Noah and his family an escape from his certain judgment, but he seems to offer it to the rest of the world. It doesn't make sense, and I can't figure it all out, but... I know that ours is a gracious God. Look at the next chapter, chapter 7, verse 11 and 12. This is crazy. This is our God. And this is what we want to see about him, even as we head into our weeks. Verse 11, chapter 7. In the 600th year of Noah's life, on the seventh day of the second month, on that day, all the springs of the great deep burst forth. And the floodgates of the heavens were opened. Whoa, 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 wait, wait a minute. How old did it say Noah was? Yeah, 600 years old. I thought he was 500. What just happened? I'll tell you what just happened. Noah spent the better part of a century building a wooden ark. Probably about 75-year construction project. Did I mention that Noah was faithful? Okay. Now, when God tells Noah, hey, I want you to build this wooden vessel of escape because I'm about to judge the world with a flood, what do you suspect may have been one of Noah's immediate questions? Yes, you're right. What's a flood? It is likely... That Noah had never seen rain. We can't say that for sure, but it is likely. What is definitely true is Noah had never seen a flood. He didn't know what a flood was. That means for the better part of a century, he labored to build this massive vessel of escape for a reality he had never seen. Okay, what that means, because here's the thing. Um, the thing about building a massive cruise ship is that you can't hide it. Everyone can see it in your front yard. And so... 75 years you better believe the entire world had heard about that freak show guy who was building this wooden vessel for for some event that was supposed to happen unlike we've ever seen and he probably became the laughing stock but here's the more important thing that meant for 75 years God was making the offer of escape to everybody who heard this story that I am coming with certain judgment, but there is an escape for you in that wooden vessel that that guy who you think is crazy is building. For 75 years, there was story after story told of what God was going to do. And you watch how this story ends because a bunch of people who said, Well, we've never seen a single drop of rain, we haven't seen a flood, so that's crazy. We will disregard it. Thank you very much. We will continue in our ways. And the story ends tragically for them. Look at verse 7 of Genesis chapter 7. It says, And Noah and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives entered the ark to escape. The waters of the flood. They entered this wooden vessel. To get away. And hide from God's certain. Wrath. Only eight people. Ended up. Being rescued. This is such a powerful um, story. Um, And uh, not a, a, a powerful story. Primarily because of Noah. It's a powerful story. Primarily because of. Jesus. Look at what it says in John chapter 5, verse 39 and 40. You study the scriptures and you have your story time diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. These are the very scriptures. These are the very stories that testify about me, Jesus says. Yet you refuse to come to me to have life Jesus is saying that all the stories in this book all the stories that I read and my mom read to us as kids including the story of Noah and the ark Jesus says is ultimately about me and isn't this story ultimately About a gracious and patient God making a way for sinful and rebellious humanity to escape his judgment through one righteous man and a wooden vessel shaped in the form of a lowercase t. Noah is just a foreshadowing of Jesus and the cross. Jesus and the cross. This story is just forecasting for us the beautiful story in the gospel that God will always judge sin. But first, in his grace, he will always provide a way of escape. There was one way of escape in Noah's day. And there's one way of escape in our day. It's Jesus. And his cross. This is just a picture that Jesus is coming into our world to offer rescue. Because here's the reality. For you, for me, for our nation, for our world, judgment is coming. God has not slacked off on sin. But in his great grace, he has made a way so that whoever believes in Jesus should not perish, but should have eternal life. How? How? By escaping and hiding behind the wooden vessel called the cross. It's not that God's judgment won't come. His judgment is coming. But whoever believes in him gets to experience rescue because the flood of God's judgment will beat up against the cross and spare those who believe in Jesus Christ. Church, if you have escaped the cross... You ought to thank him if you've never put your faith in Jesus Christ. The truth of the Bible's judgment is coming. But the greater truth of the Bible is that God has offered rescue in a wooden vessel called the cross. Forgiveness is yours today. And the crazy thing is I understand none of us have ever seen a single drop of God's judgment fall to the earth. And before we know it, we start to mark it like it's this ridiculous thing, but it is true nonetheless. Judgment is coming with only one escape. And for us as a church, what an immense privilege to walk in the spirit of Noah, faithfully inviting people to this only means of Escape, And we are going to be the freak shows because we're building our churches, talking about a rescue for a judgment no one has ever seen. You guys are crazy. For the better part of 2,000 years, this offer has been true as God has patiently been counting and wooing and calling people to himself. And we as a church ought to be so ridiculously radical and willing to dance to the tune of heaven if it means inviting people to this only means of rescue in Jesus Christ and his cross. The flood is coming, and it's going to be worse than the first. But rescue has come, and it's better than an ark. It's Jesus Christ and his cross and his willingness to forgive all who will run to Him. Will you believe that? And will you share that with the people in our world? Lord, thank you so much for your patience. Thank you so much for your grace. Thank you so much for your holiness. Thank you so much for your rescue. Thank you so much for Jesus, that He is our ark, He is our escape. Thank you, Lord, that you continue to offer this, even to a violent and rebellious culture. And the way you offer this is through us, your church. May we be a bunch of Noahs who are constantly pointing people back to Jesus Christ. And may we be a people who live like Noah so that the world can look at us and say, there is something about you and the tune you seem to dance to. You are so good to us, God, and so we praise you. And even as we walk out of here, help us to carry your hope. In Jesus' name, amen.